The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai kia the folds e mihinei ko dangre tokungwa. My guest this week is Janet Wilson, who I've known for about ten years. The the pair of us used to. Do a do a segment on the media in uh, on on First Line, which was Three's now defunct sort of morning show um, that that uh, tried to go up against Breakfast, which was which was always a fool's errand. We I always got on well with her and and liked the the sort of different perspectives we had. And uh, I remember a, a year ago when when she took on the role of press secretary for initially Todd Muller as as national leader and, and then very quickly, as you'll recall, for Judith Collins, thinking that it would be interesting to to chat with her at some stage about that because it is the role of, of press secretary for a leader, particularly for an opposition leader, is you know one of those political jobs that, that's fascinating and very difficult. I actually approached her maybe two, three months ago, when in the aftermath of, you know, a sort of a bout of bloodletting within the National Party where Todd Muller was cast aside and Nick Smith cast aside for, for disloyalty, Janet uh, wrote a column for Stuff that basically talked about the chaos within National and, and how much of it seemed a sort of determined desire to to ignore the lessons of the uh, disastrous 2020 election campaign and I actually approached her then to say would you would you come on the fold and and chat about your experiences and she thought about it for a little while and she declined she said she'd said all she wanted to say and then on Saturday morning I got a text from her saying effectively it's time Uh, and you know over the past few weeks you've seen Judith Collins have a, a real bust up with uh, Indira Stewart on breakfast, and then launch a quite extraordinary attack on on Dr. Susie Wiles on a Zoom conference call on Friday, which uh, Toby Manhide, the, the spin-offs editor, sort of wrote a, one of the most coruscating opinion pieces you're ever likely to read. I think in the aftermath of that, a lot of National Party people sort of felt like something had to be done, that, that what was happening within the party was so extraordinary and so damaging that it had gone beyond the sort of normal cyclical issues and, and started to become kind of existentially threatening. And the problem is you, your MPs can't really say that. I mean, under any circumstances, it's it's very disloyal, but under the current Collins regime, that is seen as a kind of you know, everything is a loyalty test and there's a chance that no matter how well-intentioned you might be, that any attempt to sort of correct the narrative or or return to kind of a particular set of values and principles just gets blown up. 
So therefore, it's it, it has to be the party's proxies, and um, and Janet Wilson is certainly that. You know, as she points out, she's been involved with the party for over ten years. Has helped John Key with debate prep. You know, is is just the the image of a the urban liberal uh, national party supporter, and yet as someone who basically feels kind of estranged from the party and, and deeply concerned about its future. And that's essentially the meat of what we discuss on The Fold this week. It's a pretty juicy one. So, yeah, let's just get into it. This is Janet Wilson on The Fold. Morena, Janet, and uh, welcome to The Fold. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So good to have you. And uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things we could talk to you about, but I think the, the most pertinent is your your knowledge of the, the role of the Chief Press Secretary, uh, specifically for for the National Party. Do you wonder, I wonder if you could start by telling me what, what that job entails. So I, I think a lot of us who are sort of hopelessly addicted to politics hear a lot of, of about it, but don't necessarily know what what it really involves. Right. Um, well, a colleague that I worked with described the role as like being on Omaha Beach, and in many ways, that is exactly what it is like. You are the absolute in- interface between um, the party and and the media, and the media, and that means the gallery, the parliamentary press gallery. So it, it, it's your job, the job of the national. Uh, Press sec is is to really get to know all of those journalists, to be there and to be responsive to what they're wanting and needing, and also to get out the National Party's own messaging and messages uh, on the day, and and present the party as well as you can. I mean, the, people have a lot of opinions about the the press gallery, especially now post the one pm briefings, having a lot more visibility of the various kind of characters involved do, do you feel like and you know and some of them have been quite quite critical of them you know to, to my mind unfairly what what's your sort of sense of them as as a group and how did you find them during your time in that role um i found all of them unerringly polite um under enormous a lot lot of pressure and a personal sense all of them in their own ways I think the analytics thing has really changed their jobs within that gallery immeasurably in the last 15 to 20 years. So, you know, suddenly their stories are being analysed on a on a minute-by-minute basis online. And um, therefore, and, and, you know, you, you talked about the 1pm presser. Uh, I think the criticism of them at that 1pm presser is completely unfounded. Absolutely unfounded. I think uh, a lot of people don't understand what the role of a journalist is. And, you know, you're asking dumb questions. Well, sometimes they're paid to ask dumb questions so they can get the soundbite. Sometimes they're they're paid to ask questions which are are reasonably self-evident, but they need the quote in some way. So um, I don't accept that at all. I think they all work incredibly hard. So, I mean, you, and you—I mean—that's kind of you to say about them, and particularly given that you went through some things with them. I mean, you—you—you led or, or were the press secretary for for National through one of the most turbulent and chaotic periods, particularly for a party that, for at least a decade prior, had been. The model of you know the, the sort of the natural party of government had been a model of discipline and stability and so on, 
Um, you you knew going into it that it was going to be pretty chaotic, but then I yeah. think it outdid your expectations. Just do you want to sort of tell me about why why you took the role and and what you sort of found um, initially under Muller, but then you know and under uh, Judith Collins as well. Right. I often described, I went in on contract for a start. So it was for a fixed term and it was meant to be, I think, for three and a half months until the election, which which at that stage was at the end of um, September. Um, it turned out to be four and a half months at the end because, of course, the election was continued. I have described it to friends and family as a, as a suicide mission. I knew going in exactly what it was going to be, and and thus it proved. Um, I can remember at one stage reading um, the great war poets, Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, because it seemed to me that their dystopian world reflected my own in some strange way. And I, I got strange comfort out of that in the midst of all of that madness. So I knew what I was getting myself in for. I didn't realise quite how much it was going to be a roller coaster ride. I don't think anyone could have estimated what that was going to be like. So so you initially came on board because, you know, under, under Todd Muller and, and then quite Abruptly, there, there was a uh, yeah. you know, he resigned, and there was a new leader. Did you cons- what was what were your sort of impressions of uh, Judith Collins prior to that, and and w- were you always sort of committed to to sort of staying on in the aftermath, yes. or was it something you weighed up? No, no, I was asked specifically, um, would I stay on if Judith became leader, and I said yes because I saw that I had a job to do, and that was the deal that I was there on contract that um, there, and we'd become, our little raggle-taggle gypsyo team had become a band of brothers because of what we'd already been through before Judith came on board. So I've, I felt a sense of obligation and duty to, to the party and also to those I was working with. When you got in there and started working with Judith, firstly, what were your sort of expectations of her as a leader and then what were your impressions of her during that, incredibly difficult um, campaign. There was a sense within the party at that stage that she was going to um, be a very calming influence after what had been a time of great churn, shall we say. That, that at least she had, I mean, they described it as the nuclear option. So she was a very calming influence at first and really just took her time to agreed to keep everyone on. There was no time for her to start building her own teams. I mean, as she says, she was given the ultimate hospital pass in the run-up to that election, and I, and I think that's a very fair comment to be making. It was after the leadership had started, and about two or three weeks after that, that we started to get a taste of what her leadership really looked like. The, there is one sort of moment in the campaign that was etched in my mind uh, and I think probably sticks out for a few people, which was the, that sort of infamous walk down Ponsonby Road. What, what, do you want to just, just describe that, that day I mean, and, and you know, why it all went so wrong? Yeah, um, I was there that day. Um, I, I shared duties uh, with another of the press team, and I was there that day, and it was one of those moments that you knew was going to go completely pear-shaped. 
How did it come about? You know, like this this is, was a set piece, but Ponsonby, an odd location, and it was staged in a way that everyone who saw it yeah. kind of knew yeah. it was staged. Yeah. Did you sort of advocate against it, or or is that not really the role? Is it more? It, that just- wasn't my no. That wasn't my role, and I wasn't aware. Aside of apart from the day before, exactly what was going to happen. And in fact, it didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen either, that there were going to be people who would go and meet her, but not people who were lined up like soldiers down Ponsonby Road. Um, It was, well, in the pantheon of bad, which the four and a half months was, that wasn't the pinnacle of bad. There was other moments that were equally as bad, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what? why Why do you think it went so bad? Why, why do you think that there were so, there's so many, or, or at least a number of moments that sort of had that element to them? I mean, obviously, very formidable opponent, really difficult time. Etc. Yeah. But still, they felt like there were there were sort of judgment and uh, issues within there. Yeah, I mean, you you can't discount the red tide in the midst of all of this. You can't discount that there was an enormous sense in September October that Jacinda had managed to keep everyone safe. Um, we had backbench MPs who were who were starting to door knock, who were saying to us, "I've had." Um, Voters of my electorate say to me, I have never voted for Labour before, but I am now going to vote for Labour. So we knew that there was this red tide. Um, what we didn't know was that we were going to change stream, midstream, we were going to change our campaign, which was squarely Judith's decision. Do you want to talk that through and, and what your sort of perspective on that and the extent to which you and, and the party could input on that versus this was just, you know, a captain's call. Yeah, it was very much a captain's call. Um, and that was about th- three weeks after Judith took over the leadership. She decided that she didn't like the campaign, that she wanted to throw everything out. And over the space, the course of a, um, of a weekend, um, the, the team came up with new slogans and new ideas and... Then Judith decided to start doing things on her own, things like going into churches and praying, which was never on anyone's schedule or scheme. I had media ring me and say, did you know? And I had to be really honest and say, no, I had no idea. So subsequent to then, you know, the, the, the result was what it was. And, yeah. you know, there, there was a red tide and it was really a matter of how far it would come in. Uh, yes. In the, in the aftermath of it... Did you consider staying on? Did, you know, what was your relationship like with, with Judith um, at that time? Um, my relationship was was fine. I, I helped her with debate training. You know, I sat in the back of the crowd car, et cetera, et cetera. But I, my contract was up and I was very much of the view. I was physically exhausted. I was pretty mentally exhausted. And um, I felt that my job had been done. So I left the day after the election, which was as per my contract. Have you spoken since? No. No. That feels telling on some level. I'll leave that there for you. So at that point, you go from being a core part of the team to being 
an interested observer. I mean, you are you're. Yes. It's not an exaggeration to say that you're a, a national type of person. Um, well, I've I've worked with the party since about two thousand and eight, off and on. So I worked with Key. Um, I did a lot of debate training with Key. I did a lot of media training with Key. I'm an urban liberal creature within the National Party. Which is one of the, the two big churches yeah. that it tries to, to hold, right? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, that urban liberalism is fairly scant at this present point in time, we have to say, we have to point out. Though amongst its strongest performers, you know, you're Chris Bishop, Janilka, or yeah. Sergio Erica Stanford, exactly. uh, you do see, you know, that's, that's the thread for them. That's uh, right. So in any case, you... you are someone who, who believes in the party, uh, an, an aspirational version of the party. Yep. So when you watch it over that, um, so, so the job was, was a, a job because you needed a gig, but it was also yep. something that you were passionate about. And then yep. when you watch it over the following sort of six, eight months as, as the kind of reality of what Judith is going to be like as a leader becomes clear, you're filtering through it both a professional and a, and a kind of a, a sense another lens, which is that you believe in this party. What what were your sort of, or at what point did you think that things were sort of going seriously awry? The thing that gave me the greatest hope was a Judas reaction, and she was she was pretty dignified, really, on on election night. She said, "We will change. We have listened. Um, we are going to um, make huge changes within this party." Uh, since October the 17th last year, we have seen no change. In fact, what we have seen is more and more and more of the same, both at a caucus level and also at an operational level within their party. So the party is could um, politely be termed as being moribund. It is not making any changes. It is far too top-down. The board has far too many powers and makes far too many bad decisions, particularly when it comes to candidates, and sticks to it despite being told that they shouldn't be choosing the candidates that they're choosing. And then also in a, in a caucus level under, under Judas' leadership. So the, the article that Matthew Hooten wrote for Metro recently, talking about the fact that the party was on the brink of oblivion, is entirely correct entirely correct. There is, as I said in my piece several weeks ago, they're suffering endless entitleditis and think that just the swing of the political pendulum will make them relevant. And I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing a huge shift to act. I'm seeing the rise of David Seymour. I'm seeing the rise of the ACT Party as well as the diminishment of the National Party at this present point in time. And unless things change radically, nothing will will halt that. That's a, <laughs> that's a, a, a pretty damning assessment. And, and it, it sort of speaks to, that was generally the thesis of a, of a column that you wrote for Stuff last year, which was a, quite a strange thing to do for a National Party person. Yeah, it uh, was. You know, it, it, was, uh, it, was out of, it was out of total frustration. Yeah, tell me about what, where that came from. I mean, the, the thesis, if I was to characterise it, was basically that the, the National Party under Collins had learned no lessons from the previous election, was whenever there were people who, you know, in the way that 
is natural within parties, disagreed on things. If that, that, that disagreement was discovered, they were cast out, out from the party mm. and that it was increasingly becoming not quite a personality cult, but certainly a, a, a quite authoritarian um, yep. party where people were not following the leader because they believed in them, but because the leader was impo- uh, sort of employing kind of loyalty tests on them. And if they failed, yeah. it, they knew what would happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and here's the irony. She, she demands complete loyalty and focus from her caucus, which is what any leader should do. And then she herself personally doesn't display that same focus on what the real issues are. And that's part of the problem of her leadership, I believe. That she is uh, consumed, and as I said in the piece, she prizes loyalty above all else, but then her ugly stepsister paranoia steps in and she has these almost paranoid storms. Um, I think Friday's um, speech to the National Samoan group on Susie Wiles was completely unacceptable in a National Party leader, completely unacceptable. The fact that she is still working her her bag of tricks with the likes of Cameron Slater shows us that she's learnt nothing since 2014, that she is still back to those same tricks that she was doing back in 2014. Now, High Court Judge Lester Chisholm found that there was um, no case for her to answer. That may have been the, 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 the fact of the, the matter, but she is still associating with people who I have to say in political circles she shouldn't be associating with. We'll take a very quick break there and then return with more from, from Janet Wilson. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. At Z, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. So it's really interesting um, what you say there, uh, Janet, because, you know, and, and in some ways it sort of speaks to the reason that we're, we're talking at all now. In the aftermath of that, that staff column in June, I actually approached you about um, coming on the fold then because I thought it was an interesting column and I, and I broadly thought that the, the work of a press secretary was something that not a lot of people really uh, know about, and you thought about it and declined. Uh, and then over the weekend, um, you texted me to say that you were ready to talk. What what prompted that shift? Because this is quite a thing for someone who, with such deep and long-standing ties to the National Party, to do yeah. to effectively kind of call time on on, on this leader or, or point to this level of danger for the party. Um, well, it's it's exactly that reason. I think we're at a junction now where we're at a a moment now where the harm that's been inflicted is pretty high. 
I mean, we haven't had a poll result yet, and I'm not sure when the next polls are out. And they may well have been pushed back because Auckland is in level four. But there is no doubt in my mind that the electorate will look at this and see it for what it is, which is a cheap shot at someone and it, who's, and empathy, whatever you think of Susie Wiles, is neither here nor there. Empathy will be always extended to Susie because of this attack by a political leader. Why aren't we talking about all the other things that New Zealanders are really, really worried about right now, like out-of-control housing prices, um, homelessness, uh, the, the level of poverty within this country, um, and her ideas about how she intends to change that, and holding the government to account when, frankly, the government hasn't actually had a very good track record at all in any of those areas. Before she, she launched that extraordinary attack on, on Susie Wiles, there was the a confrontation with uh, Indira on TVNZ's Breakfast that really seemed bizarre. Like the the questions that were were being asked weren't particularly you know out of the ordinary, and yet it it prompted a, a very very sort of stern and and kind of lecturing kind of a response. Uh, you know, what is your sense of both that? particular confrontation and of the way that she is handling herself in, in media situations more generally? There are, there are several different faces to, to Judith that come out. Um, but I have to say that when it comes to that interview with Indira, she's been there before. She's got past form. There was a time when she spoke very abruptly to Katie Bradford from TV One News as well. So clearly she doesn't like females coming up against her. Whereas would she accept a male doing the same thing to her? Um, possibly, because I've seen John Campbell give her equally as hard, as, ask as, as pertinent questions, and she, she tends to keep her demeanour much calmer. Um, it's almost like it's... I, I think in Judith's world, there is a hierarchy. And if you are seen to break the hierarchy and ask and, and be in, in, impertinent enough to be asking questions as a young woman, then that's, that's beyond the pale as far as she's concerned, which is why we got that over-the-top reaction. And you would have noticed the week after, she really pulled it all back and she was much calmer because she realised that she'd gone over the top. It's really interesting you say that because there is a sentiment. Tom, Thomas Coughlin from, from the Herald wrote a column about how the economy was was right there waiting, you know, as as a an area for national to yeah um, to to own as as it you know presumes to, uh, and that that listed off some of those kind of related sectors where where there remain deep um, issues, and yet. Collins seems to be preoccupied by, you know, what, what I would characterise as issues that are of huge concern to, and I'm going to sort of misquote a, a column by Toby Manheim, my editor from Friday, about, you know, people on Twitter with pseudonymous, pseudonymous, pseudonymous handles with six numbers after them. And, you know, Judith Collins is very present on Twitter for a, for a leader, 
and sort of seems to be have her eyes down on that sort of what's literally was initially called a microblogging platform rather than on those big big issues. You know, Cameron Slater, I, I haven't seen this picked up a lot, but but acknowledged in the after you know in, in the uh, aftermath of. Um, Colin's extraordinary statements on Friday that he's in regular contact with, mm. with Judith Collins mm. now. To what extent is it, you know, are these problems a function of her just looking in the wrong places, getting bad advice as opposed to um, just like like the environment itself? Um, I, I wouldn't dare um, claim that she was getting bad advice. I don't know that. Um, but what I do know is the only advice she takes is her own. So she is very much the master of her own destiny and she will make decisions based solely on who she has spoken to and those that she feels the most loyal to. So I don't know the nature of her relationship with those within that media team and I wouldn't hazard a guess. Um, she very much follows her own star when it comes to advice. And is she getting advice from the likes of um, Slater? You've got to ask yourself that. Is Slater giving her the media advice that she believes is going to make her the, the next Prime Minister of New Zealand? The chances of that are very low, I have to say. The, the thing that's sort of fascinating about all this and potentially troubling if you are a National Party-type person is that one attribute you could never accuse her of lacking is a sort of a stubbornness and a stickability. You know, she oh. has taken knocks and come back. And now that she is leader, you know, there there isn't a sort of a sense that she would read the tea leaves and um, figure out a way to, to step aside. Her, her instinct is... Uh, you know, to fight and fight and fight and to double down. And, and yeah. when you're not taking advice and when you're doubling down on your own instincts, you know, you, you can do a lot of damage potentially. And I think that that's, that's essentially your that's thesis. That's exactly that what correct? I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. What, when you talk to other people within National Party circles, sort of in and out of caucus, what, what, is, what is the, uh, the sort of mood there or what is the fear um, a fear is a, a, a very big operative word here that, she, that there isn't a, a, a real sense of fear within that caucus. So um, <laughs> Judith has demanded total loyalty and that means um, she, she stopped the leaks. Well, if she stopped the leaks to a certain degree, but then she, she decides that she's going to go onto Twitter and start saying things about, uh, about certain people. How, how can that be? I mean, that's that's been a hypocrite of the highest order, is it not? Um, the very thing that she accused Ms Wiles of, she is herself. Um, you know, she she should be taken off Twitter. Uh, if if she had a, a, a press sec worth half his or her salt, taking her off Twitter would be the favour that he would do the party and and Judith. But Judith wouldn't listen to that anyway. She would see that as an act of disloyalty. And when you sort of, you kind of wrap all that up, it, it looks like something that if there is an attempt to unseat her as leader, you, you can't miss because you'll be cast from the party potentially permanently. Mm. Um, and and yet if you don't do it, your, your chance of remaining in... Parliament, if, if you know if this if this really continues the current trajectory, it's 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 quite a bind, and I guess it 
it sort of shows you why the, the sort of character of a leader is, is as um, important as their sort of charisma or, or what, what have you. Leadership is the very essence of character and values in action and why we have faith and trust in our leaders. There's a there's something which you would know much more than me, which has been I've been sort of told by those who are closer to the likes of polling, which is that Collins polls reasonably well amongst men, but but terribly amongst women. Which is sort mm. of on some level you might, uh, you know, I mean she's a, she's a woman herself, and um, and has spoken you know at times eloquently about how hard it is being a woman in, in sort of senior positions in fact when when I interviewed her last year I thought she was quite compelling on that front you know, is, is that a correct characterization and what do you think drives mm. that the men who like her are the ones who are what I call the she's she's hanging on to the old haunch of the party but it's a haunch which is fast disappearing because I, within that board at the moment, there is not one farmer representative on that board. Now, we were the party of farmers and urban liberals back in the day, and now where are they? Nowhere to be seen. And I think that was an, an, an interesting development in that last election where I, I believe a lot of the rural community started looking at, at Labour with, a, with very fresh eyes and started saying, well, maybe we will vote for them. Or if we're not going to vote for, for Labour, maybe I'll vote for ACT. To what extent is ACT the, the real threat here? Like, you know, it, it, on some level it seems mad that this is a party that uh, a year ago had a, had a single MP who was kind of most nationally famous for, for twerking on a yeah. dance show, and yet suddenly they, they feel like plausibly an existential threat to, to national if if there isn't a, a major change um, gone through. What, what is it? And they seem to have a media strategy and a discipline and all yeah. of those and a focus that, that doesn't yeah. exist in, in national. To what extent is that the driver of this, the, those two differing trajectories? I, I, I don't, it shouldn't be at all, right? It shouldn't be. Um, internal discipline is where it's all at. The enemy is within within the National Party and without without serious examination of who they are, what they stand for and the and what they see where they want New Zealand to be seen to be going, they are going to become irrelevant. It's really simple stuff. The enemy is within. It's not outside. Um, Act is merely just capitalizing on the on on what's happening within the, the Nats at the moment and their lack of their complete lack of discipline on all levels. So how does this end? You know, like you, you know Collins better than probably anyone listening to this. Um, and it feels like both like it can't go on, but that also that, that nothing will sort of solve it. What, what, what's your sort of prognosis for the current uh, situation? Um, it will all come down to the appetite that the caucus has for where they sit in the polls. And I think the poll numbers will be the thing that will drive the change probably eventually. The caucus knew when they voted Judith in that they were, that they described it as they pulled the nuclear option. So to get rid of the nuclear option is going to take an equal and opposite force in its own way. And that would have to be a vote within caucus. Does the fact that caucus can't sort of physically assemble make that more difficult still. Yeah. 
And also the the optics the optics of, of being endlessly consumed with yourself at a time when you know your largest city, a third of your country, is in level four lockdown. Um, the optics of that are very very bad indeed. What do you think that it, based on your you know your knowledge of them and the the seriousness of the situation as you diagnose it, that the the timeline should be in the sort of weeks or months or can they somehow sort of limp to the next election and and get through? I wouldn't like to hazard a guess. I know that the um, Labour is talking about the numbers being done and if Labour is talking about the numbers being done, the numbers must be being done somewhere. I'm outside the fray now. I, I don't know the answer to that question. As an outsider, it will be interesting to me to see when they decide to jump. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.